Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What do you think God thinks of you? Why does God pursue you, even in your sin? To scold you? To punish you? What if instead it was to love you and show you grace? Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this message entitled, The Hand That Hems Us In which covers Genesis chapter 43, verse 1, to chapter 45, verse 15. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be looking at Genesis 43 to 45, this story of Joseph and his brothers. And if you don't know this story, Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37, in a move that displays their hate, of him. They do this incredibly heinous, horrible thing. They look at their brother, the one that their father loves more than all of them, this brother who is arrogant and full of himself and who dreams a dream that says one day they will all bow before him. They look at their brother and they decide that they would be better off if they were without him. And so they sell him into slavery. And for 22 years, For 22 years, they live with the fallout. The text we're coming to today, I think is a beautiful one because you see in this story, especially this portion, the beating heart of our God, the God who shows himself to us fully in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we're moving, we're gonna start in Genesis 43. I'm not gonna read the whole thing because it's three whole chapters, but I'm gonna tell the story. But I want you, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me because I want you to see this is not Caleb fancifully imagining what he hopes is in this text. This is what God has given us in his word because he wants us to know who he is. Not as we imagine him to be, but as he actually truly is. So let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, We are so grateful that we have a God who does not leave us without a witness. A God who knows how prone we are to doubt, how prone we are to to misperceive what he is like. And so Lord, we ask, take this text, take this time, and Lord, may you shine the light of the gospel into the dark corners of our hearts and of our souls. Show us the face of Jesus, and Lord, I pray, May no one leave this room without having encountered the living God. We ask that you do this through your spirit. In the name of your precious son, amen. 2008, I stumbled across this story that has stuck with me, and it's one that some of you have probably heard me share before, this story of a high school kid named Kevin Hart. Not Kevin Hart, the comedian, but Kevin Hart, the six foot five, 295 pound, former high school offensive lineman recruit. Kevin Hart, in February of 2008, was supposed to become the first athlete in his school's history to sign a Division I athletic scholarship. It was the, uh, the climax of years of hard work of slaving away in weight rooms, of sweating it out on football fields, of having coaches yell at him and train him up, of going to scouting camps and being looked at by coaches from colleges who would compare him to his peers, of coming home after school to see his mom in the driveway holding handfuls of letters from colleges saying, we'd be interested in talking further about where you wanna go. February of 2008 was supposed to be the month he made the decision. And on the day that he was going to announce where he was going to go, the whole town showed up 
They packed into the high school gymnasium. The local television station sent over camera crews who were set up to record the whole thing. And in the very center of the room, there was a table with two hats on it, one for Cal and one for Oregon. And when Kevin Hart walked into the room, the place exploded. His friends were cheering, his parents were grinning ear to ear, the cameramen started recording, and Kevin Hart walked to the center of the room and he leaned into the microphone, all six foot five, 295 pounds of him, and he said, I'm going to Cal, and he took the hat and he put it on his head and the place erupted with cheers louder than there had even been before. It's a beautiful moment. And most likely, it's one that we never would have heard of except for this one big thing. None of it was true. Kevin Hart was a six foot five, 295 pound high school offensive lineman recruit. He had worked his tail off on practice fields and in weight rooms. He'd been scouted by college coaches and he had gotten letters in the mail, but Kevin Hart had not received a single Division I athletic scholarship offer. He lied. He lied because he was so afraid that if everyone saw him as he really was, just another athlete who was good in high school but not quite good enough, that all the kids who would bump his fist in the hallways, all the smiles that he saw on his parents' faces, all the pride that radiated from his coaches, that all of it would go away because if they saw him as he actually was, they would not love him and they would not want him. And so he lied, and he lied, and he lied until he found himself standing in a room full of people staring into a television camera and realizing that in a few moments, every single thing was about to be exposed. I share that story, not because I want to shame Kevin Hart, but I share that story because in so many ways, I look at him and I see a reflection of myself. There is this piece of me, deep down in the very core of my being that is terrified of being seen of people seeing past the masks that I put on, the things that I try to hide behind and seeing me as I actually am, as someone whose heart is still full of sin, as someone who is still deeply and profoundly broken, and I am terrified that if someone, anyone saw me, anyone knew me, they would not love me and they would leave. And that fear, that fear is not just mine. It's the reason when you go to a dinner party at a friend's house, you make absolutely certain that you look your very best. It's the reason when someone asks you how your marriage is, you almost never tell them the truth, but you always give them some shade, some version that's just a little bit better than it actually is. It's the reason when you're sitting around with your friends and they're talking about their new cars or their homes and how well everything's going, you feel that need to compete and to compare and to tell them something that's just as good. It's the reason that even when we are caught red-handed, doing something that we know we should not have been doing, even when there is nothing we can do to defend ourselves, we'll still try. And we'll lie and we'll lash out and we'll hide and we'll evade because we are all terrified that if we are seen as we actually are, 
then there is no one who would look at us and love us. Because who could really know us and not condemn us? What Genesis 43 to 45 begs us to ask is what if our greatest fear, what if the thing that strikes such terror into our hearts, what if that is actually God's greatest gift? And what if those camera lights that laid Kevin Hart bare, what if those are actually grace? Because here's who Genesis 43 to 45 says that God is. God is the one who in mercy and in compassion purposefully and powerfully exposes the hearts of his people, not because he hates them, not because he wants to destroy them, but because he loves them and he intends to save. You see it in the story of Joseph's brothers. 22 years have gone by since they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And as sin always does, the thing that had promised them life, that thing that they thought would bring them freedom, their brother is gone, the one their father loved has been removed from the picture and maybe that love will come to them, that thing that promised them so much life, it does what sin always does. It just leads to death. And for 22 years, they have woken up to the reality that the pain in their father's face, it is their fault a daily reminder that there was one he loved and still loves more than them. And there is this guilt, this shame over what they have done and they have lied and lied and lied all to cover it up, all to pretend that this thing did not happen but when they get to Genesis 43, suddenly everything is about to be exposed. And what frightens them beyond any measure is the fact that it's God who's doing it. God is exposing them for who they really are, and it's that same God who so often exposes you and I. Everywhere they turn, there is the hand of God hemming them in. Everywhere they go, there is the breath of God upon their neck, relentlessly pursuing them no matter where they go. There's a famine in the land, a famine that is so severe that they are facing the very real risk of starvation, and they've heard that in the land of Egypt, there is someone who has stored up food and they're selling it to anybody that comes and anybody that has need. And so they pack up their stuff and they travel to Egypt, loaded down with money, hoping to buy some food, hoping to keep their family alive. And when they get there, they meet this mysterious ruler, this man who is second only to Pharaoh, a man who immediately is suspicious of these brothers. He doesn't believe that they are a group of 12 brothers, one who has died and one named Benjamin who is still left behind with their father Jacob back in the land of Canaan, a brother that their father loves more than any of them because he's the only remaining child of his favorite wife, Rachel, Joseph's mother. And because he doesn't believe them, he says, here's what I'm gonna do. You're gonna leave your brother Simeon here and you're gonna go back to your father and you're going to bring Benjamin with you. And if you bring him back and prove to me that you are really who you say you are, then and only then will I sell you more food. And so the brothers turn around and head back to Canaan, missing their brother Simeon. And as they're on their way home, they open their bags and they discover something that terrifies them. In their bags is the very money that they gave to the mysterious ruler. So when they return to their father, 
Not only are they yet again missing a brother, but they are also carrying money that they should not have, just like Joseph. And their father says the thing that he has always suspected but never been able to prove. Genesis 42, verse 36. You bereaved me of my children. You're the reason that Joseph is not here. You're the reason that Simeon is now gone. I am not sending Benjamin with you because I don't trust you. I don't know if you will do something to him as you have done to the others. You are not taking my son. But the famine is so bad. The threat of starvation is so real that the brothers know they can't take no for an answer. And so they beg and they beg their father and Judah one of the older brothers, Judah goes to his dad and he says, Father, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. If anything happens to him, if he does not return, if something bad comes upon his head, I will be the one who bears the blame. Only let us go because if we do not go, we will all die, Benjamin included. And their father, knowing that what he says is true, their father says, fine, go. If I lose my sons, I lose my sons. And he sends them back to Egypt loaded with twice the amount of money because he wants to make sure that this ruler doesn't think that they stole their money last time. But also with Benjamin. And this time, everything seems to go well. The ruler who is at first suspicious of them, now he welcomes them into his home. He tells them when they bring up the issue of the money that he's received their money. He doesn't know how it got back into their bags. It must have been their God who did it. He sets out a feast before them in a time of famine and he lavishes a special attention on their brother Benjamin, giving him five times the amount of food, the text says, as he gives to everybody else. The brothers can't miss it. And when they leave the next day, it seems as though this mission couldn't have been more perfect. Simeon is back in the fold. Benjamin is alive and happy and healthy. He's with the crew. They have food in their bags. The ruler seems to be happy with them. They're now ready to go back to their father with the food that will keep them alive. And then everything falls apart. Because no sooner do they leave the gates of the city than men come from the mysterious ruler saying, why have you repaid evil for good? Someone has stolen our master's silver cup, this cup that is the sign of his authority and of his power. Someone has taken it, and we think you're the ones. And the brothers are so sure of their innocence, so sure that they have done nothing wrong, they say, you can search our bags, look at anything you want, and if you find it, you can kill the one who took the cup. And the Egyptians begin to move systematically through every single bag. And to the brothers' horror, they discover that the money that they left behind in Egypt, it is yet again in their bags. And not only is the money there, but in the bag of Benjamin, the son their father loves more than them, the one that Judah has said, I will bear the blame for if anything happens in his bag, there is the silver cup. And the text says the brothers tore their clothes and Judah says the words that everyone is thinking. Genesis 44, verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He knows what we did to Joseph. He knows how our brother cried out for mercy and we ignored him. And God is not letting us get away. 
He is not letting us escape. And so Judah goes to the ruler and he throws himself at his feet. And the man who once proposed the idea of selling Joseph into slavery, that man showing how much he's been changed by God in the 22 years that have gone by, that man says, set my brother free and make me the slave instead. I will stand in his place. I will bear the blow, only do not hurt Benjamin because my father will die. And the floor drops out because the ruler, the one whose emotions have been running hot and cold, the one who is suspicious of them one moment and then is welcoming the next, the one who keeps threatening their freedom but then putting their money back in their bags, that ruler begins to weep. He begins to weep so loudly that the text says that all of Pharaoh's household heard it. Nobody could escape it. Something was going on inside of this man that was significant and deep and profound, something he could not control. And then he speaks words that had to have struck terror into the hearts of Joseph's brothers. He says in Genesis 45, verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And with one sentence, 22 years of lying falls apart. With one sentence, the masks that the brothers have been wearing, that they have hidden behind for so long, they crack and they fissure and they fall to pieces and they are laid completely and utterly bare. The thing that they had so long tried to keep hidden, suddenly it's exposed. And it says in the very next part of verse 3, they could not answer him because they were dismayed, and notice the language, at his presence. Because in the presence of Joseph, they're known. In the presence of Joseph, they are seen not as they have pretended to be, they are seen exactly as they are. In the presence of the one that they have wounded so deeply, in the presence of the one who lay in the bottom of a pit and screamed and begged to his brothers not to sell him into slavery, not to do this thing to him, to let him out, to let him live, the one whose cries they completely and utterly ignored, the one whose life they thought was only worth 20 shekels of silver, the one they sold into a living death, he is the one in whose presence they now stand and now it is they who are in need and it is he who has the power. And in the presence of such a one, what could you possibly expect but judgment? They're terrified. I know that feeling. When I was a freshman at the University of Georgia, I was running as hard and as fast as I could from everything that I had once identified with my past, from my family, from my church, from my friends. I wanted to be something different. And going to Athens, I thought there were plenty of places to hide. But everywhere I turned, just as it happened with Joseph's brothers, there was the hand of God hemming me in, laying me bare in ways that I did not really like. 
I'd get drunk. I'd go back to my dorm room and I'd see the Bible that my grandfather gave me sitting on the bed. And I'd flip it open to the same passage every single time. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is for mockers and beer is for brawlers. A wise man is not led astray by these things. And I'd weep. I'd think I could go and hide downtown, that I could just blend in with the crowds and kind of create my own identity and do my own thing. But for some reason, all these people that I never seemed to see on UGA's campus during the day, they would always show up downtown at night. All these people I really didn't want to see me, like the guy who led my covenant group at Camp All-American. He'd be down there for somebody's birthday party and I'd be sitting on the corner full of tequila going, oh, this is not what I wanted. I'm exposed. I thought, well, if I can't hide from people here, well, at least I can hide from people back home. My parents don't know. The leadership in the church that I was a part of, they don't know. And then I got a phone call from somebody I really didn't want to call me at that moment, my old youth pastor, Matt Brinkley. And Matt said, Caleb, I know what's going on and I want to come and see you. And the next thing I knew, I was in the back of his car driving from Athens to Atlanta to sit down with my parents. And then I thought, well, maybe if I can't hide in Athens and I can't hide from my family, maybe I can hide at my best friend's house. I can go there and I can get drunk and he won't tell anybody. He's trustworthy. He's safe. There is no way he would turn me in. I'll get drunk at his house. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll go to church and no one will know. But when I woke up in the morning, I was in a basement, which is a problem because he doesn't have a basement. (laughs) Matt Brinkley does. And I found myself sitting at Perimeter Church, right over there, hungover and drunk, listening to Randy Pope talk about communion, saying this is something that is for the body of Christ. And if you have sin in your life that you have not repented of or you are not a part of that body, then this is not for you. And I knew in that moment that God was speaking through Randy Pope in ways Randy didn't even realize he was speaking to me that I was seen, that I was exposed. And I remember thinking at that moment, God must hate me because everyone else seems to get away with this stuff, but he won't leave me alone. Maybe that's you this morning. That hand of God that hymns in Joseph's brothers that hand that kept chasing me down. Maybe that hand has been cutting through all the masks you've been trying to hide behind. Maybe that hand has been peeling away the layers and forcing you to stare at things in your heart that you desperately wish weren't true, but you can't escape. And you were feeling that same thing that I did, that terror in the face of exposure, because who could possibly expose you unless they want to condemn you? And maybe you're even thinking those same words, God must hate me. Hear this. Here's what I missed as a 19-year-old kid. Here's what Joseph's brothers missed. And here's what I do not want you to miss. That hand that is hemming you in, that breath that is breathing hot on the back of your neck, That is not the hand and that is not the breath of wrath. That's grace. 
Because why does God expose Joseph's brothers? It's not because he wants to destroy them. It's not because he hates them. It's because he loves them and he intends to save. The God who exposes us is the one who does it not to destroy us, but to save us. You see it right here in Genesis 45. Joseph looks at his brothers in their terror, in their fear. And Joseph doesn't condemn them. He doesn't cast them out. He doesn't say the tables have turned and now it's my turn. Instead, Joseph looks at his brothers and with tears in his eyes, he says, come near, please. And then he speaks the words that his brothers have always needed to hear but never imagined that they would. Chapter 45, verse four. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I see you. I know who you are. You are guilty. You are the ones who have done this horrible thing to me and I suffered for years because of it, but notice what follows. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go to my father Jacob. Say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, all that you have. And there, I will provide for you everything that you need. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth, the mouth of one you thought was dead but now stands before you alive who speaks to you. Joseph says, you're guilty. And you have hurt me in ways you cannot even begin to understand, but I will willingly bear the cost of that blow because I recognize this. God was doing something greater than any of us could have understood. He sent me here, not that you would be destroyed. He sent me here so that I could save you. So that you who deserve the curse could instead share in his blessing and all the riches that I have been bestowed with as Lord of the land, second only to Pharaoh, I can now give to you and preserve my family from the famine. And the very next verses is that Joseph fell on his brothers and embraced them and he kissed them and he wept. In the arms of the one from whom they expected only judgment, they found mercy instead. Grace they had not anticipated, grace they could have never expected, 
from the hands of the very one that they feared. Because the God who was exposing them, he was exposing them not to harm them, but to heal. As a little kid, I loved the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And my favorite of the bunch is one that a lot of people don't like for some reason, and I'm here to tell you this morning that you're wrong, uh, called The Horse and His Boy. And the story of The Horse's Boy is basically this. There's a boy named Shasta and his friend Erevis, and they're two talking horses. And they have been living in this land of captivity, of pain, these lives that they do not want anymore, and they want to escape to freedom in the land of Narnia. This land where animals talk, that's ruled by a powerful and gracious lion named Aslan. But that journey from slavery to freedom is a hard one. Evil men are chasing them. Comfort, food, safety, and security seem hard to come by. And nature itself seems to be against them. They've been chased by lions over rivers. They've had wild beasts encircle them at night, threatening to eat them. One of Shasta's friends, just moments before the scene we're about to dig into, one of Shasta's friends has had a lion single them out and chase them down and attack them. And now Shasta finds himself alone, walking through the dark in the middle of the night, cold and weary and tired and hungry. And he is wondering to himself how he could possibly be so unfortunate, why everything seems to go wrong for him. And suddenly, out of the darkness, there's a voice. He can't see the source of the voice, but he can tell from its depth and its power that it is the voice of something that is bigger than him and something that is to be feared. And he worries that maybe that voice is going to eat him. But the voice says to him, little boy, what's wrong? So Shasta tells him. He tells him about the lions that chased them across the river. He tells him about the wild beasts that encircled them in the night to eat them. He tells him about how cold and weary and tired and alone he's been. He tells him how very unfortunate he has been. And the voice listens to all of this. And then the voice says, I don't think you've been very unfortunate. And Shasta, forgetting that he's supposed to be afraid, Shasta goes, what, what do you mean? I just told you all the horrible things that have happened to me. What do you mean I haven't been very unfortunate? And the voice says, here's why. Because I'm the lion. I'm the lion who chased you across the river, not because I wanted to hurt you or attack you, but because there were evil men chasing you and you needed to go faster if you were gonna get away. I was the wild beast that encircled you in the night, not because I wanted to eat you, but because I was protecting you from things that actually would. I was the cat that when you were cold and lonely and tired and trying to sleep, I'm the cat that came up to you to comfort you and to make you think you were not alone. And I was the lion who when you were an infant, at a time you don't even remember, I was the lion who took you out of the shipwreck that killed your parents, who plucked you from the water and put you in a boat and pushed you to shore so that someone would find you and you would not die but live. And Shasta realizes 
that he has profoundly misunderstood everything. That all these things that he thought were random, all these things that he thought were arrayed against him, that behind every single one of them was a hand of love sovereignly guiding the entire thing. That he had never really been alone. He had never really been abandoned. And that the voice that he heard calling from the darkness, it was not a lion to be feared, but a savior to be loved. That's the God of Genesis 43 to 45. That's the God who pursues and exposes Joseph's brothers not to destroy them, but to save them. And that's the God who pursues us in Jesus Christ. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who is the greater Lord than Joseph could have ever dreamed of being. The one that God promised would come through that screwed up, broken family who rules not over just a one country for a limited period of time like Joseph, but one who rules over all of creation, all of heaven and all of earth, over all space and all time and all of history. And he is the one before whom ultimately every one of us must give account. And in his presence, in the presence of that Jesus, we're exposed. He sees through all of our masks. He sees through all of our pretense. He sees through all of our lies. Because just as Joseph could see his brothers because he was the one that they had sinned against, Jesus is the one that you and I have sinned against. He's the one who, when he came near and brought the rule and the reign of God to bear, he's the one whose rule and reign we so despised and we so hated that instead of bending our knee to him and saying, you are Lord of all, instead we said, you're gonna bend your knee to us and we crucified him. We're exposed. No matter what we pretend to be, on the cross, God has laid our hearts bare. As Tim Keller says it, on the cross, Jesus sees you to the very bottom. But here's what's beautiful. On that same cross, he also loved you to the skies. Because who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who says to you what Joseph says to his brothers. Come near. Do not be afraid. You are guilty. I see you as you are. There is nothing hidden from me, but I am the one who will bear your guilt. I will experience the cost of your sin in my own body, and here's why. Because God, God my Father, as John 3 says, he has sent me here for this purpose, not to condemn, but to save. And as the one who truly died but now is raised, to usher you into everything that I have and the life that I possess, to say to you who deserve the curse, here in my arms there is blessing. Because the God who has been exposing you, he's been exposing you with this purpose that you would truly and really be saved. It's that Jesus who invites us through the lips of Joseph to draw near. It's that Jesus who says to you and to me, 
to all of us in our hiding and our pretending to lay down our masks, to give up on our lies, and instead to stand before him as we actually are. Because as those who are fully known and also fully loved, there is nothing, there is nothing from him that we need to fear. It is that Jesus who invites you to step out of whatever you once pretended to be and to step instead into the embrace of a grace that cost him his own life, a grace that he delights to give. John Newton once said this in his hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and it was grace grace my fears relieved. It's that grace that Jesus offers to you this morning. It's his hand that has been hemming us in. It's his breath that has been on our necks. Not because he hates us. Not because he wants to destroy us. But because he loves us. And he would see us made whole. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful that we are in the hands of a God who meets our sin, not with anger and wrath and condemnation, but Lord, instead with a mercy in Jesus that is beyond our comprehension, Lord, because it's a mercy that we ourselves would not offer. Lord, when we are wounded in these ways, our response is not grace, it's not to bear the blow, it is to lash out, it's to want to get vengeance, but you are a God of such profound grace. And Lord, I pray that you would take all of us, wherever we are this morning, Lord, if it is those who are far from you or those who know you or wherever we are, Lord, we pray that you would take our, our vision of who you are, our understanding of what kind of a God you are and what your heart is like, and I pray that you would cut it all away and replace it with the thing itself. Bring the light of the gospel to bear on us in ways that leave us permanently changed as those who know themselves and in knowing themselves come to know you as you actually are. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.